You know, being a pastor, one of the things that happens is a lot of times I have people that come up and they'll ask me to pray for them. And many times I get very confused uh, by this. I'm not always sure what to pray. I'm not always sure how to pray for them. Last Sunday, a young couple came up to me after the uh, celebration and they wanted to share with me that their, uh, they were expecting their first child and they were going to have a planned C-section on Friday. And I told them, hey, I'll, I'll pray for you. And uh, they said, yeah, and could you come up on Friday? And I said, yeah, and, and I was looking forward to that. And on Tuesday morning, I'd written their names down, and in my own personal time, I was praying for them that uh, the delivery would go safely and that they would experience God's peace. And all of a sudden, I kind of got one of these promptings. I don't know if you've ever done this before, if you've been praying for someone. I just got a prompting that there might be some complications, and so I just prayed, like, in that moment, that if there were any complications, that that God would strengthen them. Well, later on Tuesday afternoon, I got this text from the wife. I'm in the hospital, and so is Justin. Please pray for us. And I'm like, what am I supposed to pray? That was the only thing that was in the text. And so uh, I got a few more texts back and forth, and this is what had happened. The soon-to-be uh, dad had an emergency appendectomy surgery. And while he was having his appendix taken out, her blood pressure started getting so high that they had decided that it was too dangerous for the baby to be delivered on Friday, and they were going to deliver the child that night. And so when I get to the hospital... I asked God, like, give me some wisdom. Which room should I go to first? The one who just had his appendix taken out or the mom, soon-to-be mom, whose whole world is kind of turned upside down now. So I went to the uh, husband's room first and I walked in and he had just come out of recovery and he was kind of looped out a little bit. And I was like, Hey, Justin, uh, how can I pray for you? He's like, hey, Chris. And I'm like, hey, Justin. And so I walk up and I pray for him. And I pray that his uh, healing would happen in such a way, because things weren't going to change for him. I knew that. Just had his appendix taken out. But that he would be coherent enough to be able to see the birth of his daughter. And so I prayed for that and I said amen and then all of a sudden he said this. He goes, man, the crackers around here are horrible. <laughs> I'm like, well, you, you know, when you're praying for someone who's just had narcotics, it can, it can be difficult, folks. It can be difficult. Well, the prayer wasn't done yet, so now I had to go up to the wife's room and I walk in there and, you know, there's a little bit of stress because she was planning on this pregnancy uh, to be the C-section that was planned. The baby was breached. She has lupus. There's like all of these complications. And she was expecting on Friday. And so I go in and I pray. 
and knowing that there are all of these things that could go wrong. I'm just praying that God's will would come and that God would bring the child safely into the world. So in one day, folks, this family who was just pleasantly waiting to have the birth of their first child on Friday, on one particular day, there are not one surgery, but two surgeries, both unexpected. But I'm grateful to report that mom and baby and loopy dad are doing well. And baby McKenna, uh, yeah, you can clap for that, that's good, uh, came into uh, the world. So, folks, all I'm saying is that prayer, when you take it seriously, it's not an easy matter. It can be extremely difficult. In the early days of the jar, I remember there was a person, uh, a guy who was attending here, and he would, he would come, and, uh, but he was just kind of a lazy guy. And pretty soon he started asking for money because he couldn't make it. He had a job. And it paid pretty well, but they just went through their money as quickly as they got it. And over time, one of the things that I found was that he would start asking other people in the church for money, too. And so the church gave him some money. I helped him out, and I gave him some money. Some other people in the church did as well. And in the midst of this, of more people giving him more, you would think that all of a sudden he would kind of get it. And, but he didn't. He just kept spending more. It's like the more that you gave to him, the more that he spent and the less that he gave to the church. So one day I kind of pulled him aside and I said, hey, I just want to encourage you. I think this money management seminar that we teach and we teach one each year, that uh, it'd be really good for you. And you could learn how to use God's money his way. And you could live within your means. And this is what he said to me. I don't need that class. My problem isn't spending. My problem is I don't make enough money. Would you pray for me that God would give me a better paying job? And I'm thinking to myself in that moment, should I say yes, I'll pray for him? Or should I say no? And he didn't know this, but silently, like in my head, I'm already thinking to myself, God, don't give him a better job, because if you do, you'll never see the money. He'll keep it all to himself. But sometimes when people come up to me and they ask me to pray for them, I'm like, I don't know what to do. Or if I prayed what you wanted me to pray right now, it wouldn't be an intelligent prayer. You know, the older that I get, the more I realize that I want to pray in the flow of God. I want to pray intelligent prayers. And today we're going to look at a particular prayer in the Bible, which I think is one of the greatest prayers uh, ever written. Paul, who was uh, one of Jesus' closest followers, and he wrote about half of the New Testament, had spent... Three years with a church in Ephesus, which is in present-day Turkey. And he writes back to them. He's in jail. He's in prison, but he's writing to them. And in chapter 3, verse 14, he says this. For this reason, 
I kneel before the Father. He's like, right now, as I'm writing this letter to you, I am on my knees. I'm in prison, but I'm on my knees and I am praying for you. I have a prayer that is coming out of me from my heart. And it's going to be an intelligent prayer. And in the very first part of this prayer, this is what he prays. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, this is kind of the first movement. There'll be several, six altogether. But this is the first movement in this prayer. And as Paul is praying, it, he's hoping that these people would be strengthened in their inner being. And so if you're taking notes, that first step is that he wants people to be strengthened in their inner being. Have you ever noticed that most of the time when we pray for other people, we pray for external circumstances? But how often do we actually pray for someone that they would have strength in their inner being? Here, Paul could have prayed for the church that the economy got better in their community. He could have prayed that they would get better paying jobs. He could have prayed that the spring rains would come perfectly. He could have prayed that a conservative was going to be elected in the political realm. He could have prayed that there was a liberal that was going to be elected in that. He could have prayed that LeBron got to the Cavs, you know, and that the Pacers might actually have a chance to beat him finally. But Paul resists all of those external things, praying for that, but he prays not a fair-weather circumstances prayer, But he prays that whatever the circumstances are that come into their life, I pray that you would be strengthened in your inner being. And folks, this is a challenge for many of us. That when we pray for others, that regardless of the circumstances that is going on in their life, that we need to pray that they would receive strength from God so that they would be infused in their inner being so that they could handle whatever it is that's going to come down the pike. Because the reality is, you know this as well as I do, that you don't always control the circumstances of life, but you do control who you turn to for strength in life. I mean, for everyone that you care about, I hope that you're praying that they would be strengthened in their inner being. It's an intelligent prayer. And I think this is one that you should pray for the president. You should pray for the governor. You should pray for the mayor. You should say pray for your pastor. Pray for your boss. Pray for other people in leadership. Because we all need strengthened in our inner being. Well, Paul then turns to the next section of the prayer and he says this. He says, I pray so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And in this movement of the prayer, Paul's prayer to the people is this, that they would be convinced of Christ's indwelling presence. That they would be convinced of Christ's indwelling presence. How many of you know someone who wrestles with disappointment or loneliness? Anybody know anybody in your life 
that wrestles with disappointment. Some people are like, it's me. You know, it's like, not somebody else, it's me. But they just feel all alone. We all know people like that. Remember that, G- that just before Jesus ascended to the Father. So Jesus comes as this little cute baby. And then eventually he starts his teaching ministry. He leads a group of 12 guys and many women into a relationship with him. He feeds thousands. Eventually, he's taken to a cross. He dies on the cross. Three days later, he comes back from the dead. He's seen by 500 witnesses in a 50-day period. And then on his last day, he gets his disciples together. And he goes back to his father. And do you remember what he said to them before he left? It'll come up on the side screen. Let's read this out loud together. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Some of you should write that down and look at it later this week. Because some of you need that. To be reminded, Jesus says, I'm leaving and my physical presence is going back to the Father. But my spiritual presence will always, not just when you call on me, but I'm always going to be present, even to the end of the age. Over the years, I've had to officiate at some very, very difficult funerals. I've had several funerals of young kids who've been killed in car accidents. I've had several suicides, stillborns. And oftentimes, when I'm with the parents, or I'm with the family, and I'm talking to them and just trying to comfort them in some way because of this horrible tragedy that has just hit them, there are so many times that I feel completely helpless. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to pray. And sometimes what I'll do is I'll just begin to start reciting Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then eventually when I get to verse 4, where it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And when I read that, you can just see people in the midst of that tragedy, they'll just be just like there's no hope. I'm in the valley of death right now. But then I'll say, but it says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And then I'll repeat it again. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Did you realize that one of the greatest gifts that you could ever give to anyone is to let them know that God is for them? That God is present. That God is with them. That they are really never alone. They do not suffer in isolation. But Christ is dwelling in them. And when you get on your knees and you pray that for someone else, folks, 
and those kind of things. It can be a powerful prayer. I mean, often, just by people believing that God is with them, it can make the total difference in the world. It can be from the fact that, you know what, we don't know how we're going to do it, but we believe that God's going to help us somehow make it through. To the point of saying, you know what, this is so horrible, and they go into the abyss of despair. About a year after we started the jar, I hit one of the lowest points in my life and in the life of this church. We had grown the church up to about 25 people that began to start meeting in my living room. And all of a sudden, people just started dropping like flies. And we had gone down to about eight people. And I mean, I was done. I was ready to throw in the towel. It was over. And I remember one time I was, I was praying in this little closet that we had in our old house. I was praying. And I was just lifting up my hands to God. And I said, God, I'm done. I'm at my end point. I can't do it anymore. My leadership is too limited. And I'm frustrated. I'm feeling all alone. And all of a sudden I feel this prompting. Well, just open up God's word. And so I opened up the Bible and I started trying to look for some encouragement. And all of a sudden, Hebrews 13.5 came. I want you to read this out loud. Let's read this out loud together. I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. Let's read it again. I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. Again, this is one you might want to write down. And in that moment, one of those lowest moments where... Within your calling, it's like at its lowest moment. All of a sudden, I get this like infusion of encouragement that says, Chris, I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. And it just hit me. I'm going through a trial right now, but I'm not alone. My situation is not going to gone unnoticed by heaven. And it just hit me. That I'm not alone. That God, in that little prayer closet, was right there beside me. And he's saying, I'm aware of your situation and I'm for you. Now, as mystical as that sounds, and for some of you who are just like kind of checking out this whole uh, kind of uh, God thing. I'm just telling you, when you feel the presence of God in your life, in a situation when you're going through some difficult stuff, it can be the difference between you saying, you know what, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm just going to keep going. Or the difference, as I said before, you fall into the abyss of despair. And I remember that next Sunday, I had to stand up and I had to teach before this group of people. And God didn't send us 100 people that Sunday, folks. God didn't send us 50. He didn't send 25. He sent 10 people. The circumstances had not changed whatsoever. But that night, I'll never forget, I felt the presence of God right beside me saying, I'll never leave you, Chris. I'll never abandon you. Folks, when you pray that for other people, 
wherever they're at, whatever's happening in their life, that God's presence would just come into their circumstances. It's a powerful thing. And when God answers that prayer, and someone is reminded that God is with them in the deal that they're going through, it's a powerful thing. It's a huge gift that you give in terms of prayer. That leads to the next movement. In verse 17, it says this. Paul says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. So the whole thought around this phrase of Scripture that Paul gives can be summarized, I think, this way. That when he's praying to the Ephesians, he's wanting them to be rooted in a love that surpasses knowledge. He wants them to be rooted in a love that surpasses knowledge. Now I want to spend a little bit of time here. Any of you that have read the New Testament before, and you've read some of Paul's writings, what you'll know is that he was a knowledge guy. I mean, he wrote about half of the New Testament. He wrote Romans. I mean, I still don't totally understand Romans. Because it is like the deepest theological defense for the Christian faith that has ever been written, ever. He is an intellectual champion of the first century. He was all about theological doctrine. He taught about Christ's resurrection. Like a high-priced attorney. He sparred back and forth with all of the Greek philosophers. He was like the Rhodes Scholar of Christianity and of all theological belief in the first century. He was like an intellectual rock star. He was a brainiac. And then he says, but as important as knowledge is, and it's really important, he says there is something about the love of God that when it touches the heart of a human being, that it actually surpasses knowledge. There's something that when God's love cuts into your heart, That goes deeper than what facts ever will. I mean, Paul is saying, hey, I'm a head guy. That's who I am. I am an intellect. I am an intellectual person. But when your heart is affectionately touched by the sovereign God of the world, it surpasses knowledge. When I was in seminary, I had to read a lot of books. And one of the theologians that we had to read was a guy by the name of Karl Barth. Here's a picture of him right there. He was considered the most influential theologian of the 20th century. He's often considered the most intelligent Christian. Think about this. The most intelligent Christian theologian since Thomas Aquinas, which was in the 13th century. So this guy is like really, really, like add up all of our brain power here. We're still in trouble. Okay. He wrote over 600 books. I read two of them. Actually, I read part of two of them. 
Because every time that I would read his books, I always had to have a dictionary right beside me because I couldn't get through a sentence without going, I have no idea what he's saying. And it took me a long time, so I just didn't read all the books. But I remember one day, I pulled back and I was like, okay, I'm not going to read about him today. I want to know about this guy. And there was an article that was written about him when he was at Princeton Theological Seminary. So like the highest place where they teach about Christian theology. And someone asked him a question in this big debate. They said, out of all of the doctrines of the Christian faith, what is your favorite doctrine? And Karl Barth said this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. He is, we are weak, but he is strong. And I'd forgotten about that, and I was reading that this week. And it just hit me. It's true. Like, that is the essence of the Christian faith. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And on Thursday, I was working on my teaching and my girls were running upstairs. And all of a sudden, I just started like tearing up. Because it wasn't just a little song that I was reading, but all of a sudden, I started thinking, Jesus loves Chris. This I know. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. And I went into the other room, and I printed out the whole thing, and I put it on the refrigerator. And each time that I've walked by that this week, it's like my heart has been softened more to go, that really is true. It really is. In our scripture today, Paul is like, I understand predestination. I understand regeneration, which we talked about the last two weeks. I've written letters about all of this stuff. But there is something about the love of God that when it hits your heart, it surpasses knowledge. And when you feel it, it actually changes your life. And you realize that in a moment of time, that the God of the universe has a focused, passionate, irrational, unconditional, eternal love for you. For you. For you. For you. That out of the seven billion people that there are in the world, there is a place in his heart that is just for you. And he sends love. And when you get a fresh touch of his love, it's better than any book you'll read. It's better than any class you'll take. And not that books are important and not that we shouldn't be taking classes, but there's something about a direct touch from God. And here Paul says, God's love is wide and it is long and it is high and it is deep. And then he reminds us again. He says, if it's not enough that I remind you here, I'm going to remind you again in Romans where all the theology of Christianity is. It's right there. But in the midst of all of that, right in chapter eight, he says this. He says, out of all of the intellect, this is what he says. For I am convinced neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation 
condemnation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's almost like Paul gets to the end of that and I get an image of my, in my mind, a picture of him spiking something. Like he just scored the touchdown of the human race. He's got it in his head and he writes it down and he says, there's nothing that can separate you from God's love. And he like spikes the football and he goes, yeah, God. Nothing is better than this. Nothing. Folks, in the final analysis, Paul was a knowledge guy, but more so he was a love of God kind of guy. I've shared this with you before, but my aha moment of God's love for me came when I was 24 years of age. And it wasn't because I sat there with a book and all of a sudden I started connecting all the dots of the Christian theology so that I could be focused. But it came in a tidal wave crashing down into my life of God's love. And all of a sudden I'm like, are you kidding me? Seriously, I didn't know that there was a love that existed like this. And you know what, folks, since I was 24, to be quite honest, I've never gotten over it. I'm still in recovery. I just can't believe that he'd love me. And every once in a while, I'll get a fresh touch of that. I'll be driving in my car. I'll be running. It's, it happens sometimes in the weirdest of places where all of a sudden, you know, God just kind of like comes and he touches you. We were watching Pinocchio at the Civic Theater. I hope many of you will go and support our Civic Theater. But we're sitting there and all of a sudden there's like this touching scene. And all of a sudden it just like hit me. I'm like Pinocchio. And I'm like crying. And it had nothing to do with Pinocchio because in that moment I just felt God telling me, Chris, I love you like that. And I want you to tell other people that that's the way the Father loves. I'm like, whoa. Like my daughter Jordan's beside me. She's like, Dad, get a grip. It's just Pinocchio. But every once in a while I'll just hear God say, I love you, Chris. I love you. I know all the crap that you do. I know all of your mistakes. I know all the stuff that you do wrong. And I still love you. And I just go, wow. You know, when you pray for someone and you just say, God, right now, I just pray that John, I just pray that Jane would have a touch of God, a direct touch of love. And they're open to that, folks. It can be the most powerful thing. Next part of the prayer says this, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And Paul kind of summarizes this as he writes to these Christ followers in Ephesus. I want you to be filled to capacity with God himself. I want you to be filled to capacity. And here I think Paul's saying that no Christ follower is ever going to really live to the potential they have with a quarter bucket of God. You'll never live to the full potential that God has for your life with a half bucket of God, with a three-quarter bucket of God. 
People who just want a mild dose of God. It's like a half of a shot. I'll take a half a shot of God. They never get to the point that God intended for them to be. So Paul says, God wants you to be at the full capacity with him. That you would know his thoughts. That you would feel compassion for people. That you would be his hands and feet in a hurting world. That you would be filled to capacity with God. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to be filled to the capacity of God? It means that when you wake up in the morning, you say, God, I want this day to be all about you. I want it to be all about you. And however you want me to serve you, I'm open, but give me the power to do it. And then maybe you spend some quiet time. You, you get your Bible out, or maybe you got your app, and you just pull out a, a verse or two, and you take a few moments, and you pray, and you read God's Word. And this is what I found, that when I'm reading God's Word sometime early in the morning, all of a sudden, it's like the gauge starts going up. It's like it goes from empty and all of a sudden I see it going up and like the capacity is getting filled with who God is. And I'm ready. And then maybe you get in your car and you turn on some worship music. And you're singing along, you know, and you're driving. All of a sudden you get moved by the Spirit. Don't put both hands up, you know, just one. You know, and then switch it. Just kind of like that, you know. And all of a sudden you're feeling God's capacity and you're being filled up. And then you're ready to go to work. And all of a sudden, that knucklehead or that woman that gossips about everybody there, you walk in there and you're already filled up with God. And you're like, you can't get, you can't get under my skin today. And you just walk through the day because you're filled up with God. And you go to bed at night and you're, you finally just say, this, last night, yesterday was such a great day. And I came to the end of the day, I'm like, what a great day, God. I'm so glad I got to do it with you today. We did it together. Now let me ask you this. Have you ever gone through a day with only a quarter of a tank of God? I have. Man, it's a totally different experience. And this is why Paul says that everyone in the church of Ephesus, he prays that they'd be filled up. Next part of the prayer, which is one of the most transformative scriptures in my life, honestly. Verse 20. Paul writes this. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ask or think according to the power that works within us. And here Paul is saying, I wish that every Christ follower in Ephesus would be absolutely convinced of God's miracle working power. You see, what Paul's worried about is that there are some people in Ephesus who because they haven't had some of their prayers answered, that some of them have started to believe that there are some things in life that are just impossible. You know what I'm talking about? There are some of us in this gymnasium that we used to pray for a brother or a sister or a mom or dad that their life would be changed and that they would come to Christ, but you prayed for 
days and months and years and decades and nothing has changed. And so finally you just said, you know what, that's impossible. And I'm putting it in that bucket. I'm putting it in the impossible bucket. And some of you have a gigantic need in your life. And you've been praying for it and praying and you just don't see it being met and you don't see the need met. And finally you just go, you know what, I'm going to put it in the impossible bucket. And if you're not careful, when you go through your Christian walk, your impossible category can get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And what God category, the God category shrinks less and less and less over time to where you don't even expect God to ever do anything supernatural in your life. So here Paul says, hey folks, God isn't just able to do that supernatural kind of stuff. What's it say? He is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you could ask or think. That's what he's capable of. Don't sell him short. Don't lose sight of this. There is no impossible category when it comes to God. Because he can answer everything in that. Exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you could ask or think of. And Paul says, I'm praying this for you. And the reason why this particular verse has been so meaningful to me is that about five years ago, all of a sudden, I I thought to myself that this church was going to die. About five years ago, in a six-month period, the worship leader, the children's ministry director, the administrative assistant, and the financial director all left in a matter of six months. Mikey and I were the only ones on staff, and he was getting tired of looking at me too, I think. And the jar was like on its last leg, and we had plateaued at 200, and all of a sudden we started going down further and further like that. And I was crushed, folks. I don't get crushed very often. Most of the time, I just kind of plug through things. But I was crushed. And I thought there is no way that we're going to survive this. This is it. And I went away for a couple of days just by myself to a retreat center. And I was still before God. And I tried to listen to God. And I had read about prayer and fasting before. And so I thought, you know, if you want to see God move, you should do this. And so for 30 hours, I prayed and I fasted. I slept very little. And at the end of the 30 hours, guess what had happened? Nothing. I had a headache and my stomach was growling. But then in the 30th hour, all of a sudden, through God's spirit, not audibly, but through his spirit, he said, Chris, your dream is too small. I want to give you my dream. I want to stretch the people of the jar. I'm going to give you a new dream. And for those of you who have never read or or seen our dream of jar 2.0, they're over at the resource table. You can pick it up. But God gave us a dream and we... As the church said, this is it. This is what we think God is calling us to do. Last night was a perfect example of us trying to fulfill it. 
We rented out Tui Pool, and there were hundreds and hundreds of people that came free of charge. Why? Because part of the dream is that we want to share the good news of Jesus to as many people as we can in all of East Central Indiana. And people just flocked there. And it was during this time in which the scripture in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, came to, more, came to me as I was reading. For he is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you could ask or think. And I memorized that scripture in those two days. And God has been so faithful to us. Not that we haven't had issues in the last five years, but God has been so faithful and we've seen God do some amazing things in the life of the jar. Our June attendance was the highest June attendance we've ever had in the history of the jar. God is moving up and to the right and I just don't want to get in the way because I know that He wants to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ever ask or think of. And on Thursday, I was running by myself, and uh, I just was brought back to those two days where it was just God and me. And I was reminded again, in your life, I want you to know that God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you could ever ask or think. And so if you need to revisit your impossible bucket category, revisit it. And then say, you know what? Yep, I think God could do that. He hasn't lost his stuff. He's still sovereign. He's still powerful. He can still rock your world. And then Paul finally wraps up his prayer. Kind of the pinnacle of it when he says this. And to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And Paul here, he's like he came to the end of it and he says, I'm going to summarize it all. And and it's kind of like I want everyone to be eager. I want you to be eager for God's glory to be displayed in His church. Throughout the generations. I'm guilty of this. I bet some of you who are Christ followers are as well. That sometimes we have a tendency to use God for our glory. We just kind of use God for our purposes. We pray for money. We pray for homes, we pray for relationships, we pray for comfort, we pray for promotions, we pray for this and that and the other thing. God, do it, and then He does it. And sometimes we say thank you, sometimes we don't. But there comes a point, folks, if you're really growing in your faith, where you finally start praying differently. And Paul is saying that I hope that you come to the point that you are eager, not for your glory, but that you are eager for God's glory to be displayed in the church. And not just the jar, but all churches. That when you're driving by churches, 
Rather than looking at their stupid signs and going, seriously, that's like the dumbest thing I've ever seen before. See, a lot of you know you're laughing because you've had that thought. Don't do that. When you drive by, just say a prayer. Would God's glory be revealed in this church? Paul prays for people that they would be filled up so much that they would be eager for God's glory to be displayed. And what's it say? For the next generation. Not just for this generation, but for the next. You know, I was thinking about it this week. That I want my two girls, Jordan and Shiloh, to see God's glory displayed in the jar. Like I want them to experience God's glory in this place. And I was thinking that as we start kids camp tonight, and if you're not coming, you should come. And if you don't just come for any other reason, pick a neighborhood kid. Get somebody. Bring them here. See a child on the street say, come on. But it's been my prayer this week that the kids at kids camp would see the glory of God displayed in their generation. I mean, wouldn't it be cool if our kids, and if you're a grandparent, wouldn't it be cool For your kids to see God's glory displayed in even greater ways than what you and I have ever experienced in our life. Man, I want that. Don't you want that for your kids? Don't you want that for your grandkids? That God's glory would be displayed in even greater ways? And so this week, I had some time to pray for you guys through the movements of this prayer. I prayed for you. And I thought maybe the best way we could close today is by having you now be able to pray for someone else. That first one that we looked at earlier about being strengthened, strengthened in their inner being. I'd like you to think right now, we're going to, Bring the lights down here just for a second so that you can spend some time in prayer. Who in your life needs strengthened in their inner being? Maybe you write their name right at the outside of that so you remember. You know what? I'm going to keep on praying for whoever that is. Who do you know right now on this next one? Who do you know right now that is so lonely and They feel isolated. Maybe it's someone who just went through a death of a spouse. Maybe it's someone who's gone through a divorce, but they feel lonely right now. Why don't you just write their name? Pray that they just be aware of God's presence. Who's the hardest hearted person you know? Don't say your spouse. But who's the hardest hearted person you know? Why don't you just pray right now that God would touch them in a way that would surpass human knowledge? Who in your life just needs to be filled up with God? Who's that? Who just needs 
to be filled with. Who in your life needs a miracle right now? I mean, they need a Hail Mary pass. I mean, it is 4th and 40. Not sure if you're even going to get there. But they just need a miracle right now. And you could pray for them right now. And wouldn't it be awesome if we could pray that every Christian would just be eager for God's glory to be displayed in His church, in all churches, in this next generation, in the generation to come. Who is that? So I'm going to invite the prayer team to come up, and if you'd like prayer for anything, they'd love to pray for you. And I invite you to stand as we just kind of... uh, close in some time of prayer. So now, God, we've been prayed for and we've prayed for some people because we believe in prayer, God. So help our prayers in the future to be intelligent. We have a model now, God, of how to do that. And so we ask that you help us to be people of prayer. And God, help us to pray today in faith. That we are convinced that you are able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ask or think. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus.